Momentum HSS, a podcast where we explore the diverse present and future trends of the humanities and social sciences. This is your host, Darby Orcutt. I am a librarian, teaching faculty, and researcher at NC State University, and adjunct faculty at the School of Information and Library Science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. My guests on this podcast are an amazing array, including associational leaders, funders, and scholars with deep background in the themes we'll be discussing. Please feel free to listen to episodes in any order that makes sense to you. And as you feel moved, I hope you'll reach out via Twitter, at Darby underscore librarian, or more privately via email at dcorcut at ncsu.edu. As always, I hope you'll be as I am, inspired, encouraged, challenged, and changed by what you're about to hear. My guest, James Grossman, is Executive Director of the American Historical Association. Formerly Vice President for Research and Education at the Newbury Library, he has taught at University of Chicago and University of California, San Diego. The author of Land of Hope, Chicago, Black Southerners and the Great Migration, and also A Chance to Make Good, African Americans, 1900 to 1929. Grossman was project director and co-editor of the Print and Digital Encyclopedia of Chicago, and his articles and short essays have focused on urban history, African-American history, ethnicity, higher education, and the place of history in public culture. So Jim, you regularly speak in official capacity for the American Historical Association, But tonight I'm going to ask you to speak principally as yourself, as Jim Grossman, as an individual who's reflected deeply on the place of history and the historical disciplines within the academy, within cultural institutions, within the economy, within politics and public life, and so on. And I'd like to encourage your frank impressions of where history, and indeed the broader scope of the humanities and social sciences is, and maybe needs to go. And I'd like for you to start us down that path, if you would, with an answer to this question. What one thing first comes to your mind when I ask, what's the biggest change in the landscape of how history is practiced that you've witnessed during your career? I think that since I started graduate school in 1974, at that time, we were just in the transition from focusing more on people who exercise power uh, people who have had traditional have had attention traditionally to what was being called at the time variously history from the bottom up, uh, even just simply called social history at that time, history of the inarticulate, which was a terrible term. term. But since the early 1970s, and this is 50 years, uh, the, the transition has been really total. Uh, in terms of the ways in which historians have paid attention to people who uh, are harder to find in the historical record. Uh, At at one time, people thought that some of these people were impossible to find, which we found out is simply not true, that you just have to work a little harder uh, to find people who uh, have not exercised power, who have not been in positions of influence. So over that 50 years, uh, that's certainly one thing. But in some ways, we've also seen how it's gone back. We've also seen, I think, in the past decade or or two, uh, more historians realizing that it is important to study people who exercise power. Uh, You can't just study, quote, the people. Uh, You have to understand how power has been exercised, 
how change has been influenced by a combination of uh, actions taking place in various parts of society, various levels. I think one big change also has been that when I was writing my dissertation in the, uh, around 1980, 81, one of the things we were doing was we were trying to find agency. Uh, and we found it. We found that everybody had agency. Uh, serfs had agency. Enslaved people had agency. Immigrants had agency. And this was new uh, because uh, people who were in those positions had been really looked at as victims before by historians, even historians who were sympathetic to their victimization. And so one of the things that historians were doing was trying to find ways in which uh, these individuals had agency. And certainly for my advisor's generation, that was enough of an argument. The argument they had agency was all you had to do. But over the 80s and 90s, what we realized was proving that people had agency wasn't much. You had to explain what they did with it, uh, how they used it, how they shaped change. So I think that's one of the biggest changes over time. The other big change over time, of course, is that in the 1980, late 1980s, Joan Scott's brilliant article on gender as a category of, uh, of, of historical change had a de- has had a deep influence. Scott's Gender as a Social Category is still the most downloaded article in the American Historical Review. So if you time the beginning of my career circa 1980, uh, that's probably one of the most important changes from looking at women's history to recognizing that gender is everywhere. So how does that how does that change impact the resources, the tools needed? to do history. In some ways, the resources, it's, it's become more a matter of how to use the resources imaginatively. When I started my dissertation on African-American migration from the South to the North, I was told both by senior historians and by archivists that it was not possible to write that dissertation, that the sources didn't exist. Uh, fortunately, my advisor told me to ignore them. And what we were learning at the time was how to use sources differently. So that's one thing. I think the second thing we've learned is that we have to look carefully at what gets saved and what doesn't get saved. And therefore, how we read what's in an archive, how we read what's in a library, uh, recognizing that that's not necessarily everything that could have been recorded. That's not necessarily everything that could have been saved. So I think that's one change in terms of the resources, especially in very recent years. Some of us have also realized the imperative of quantitative literacy. In the 1970s, quantitative history became somewhat fashionable. It somewhat disappeared from fashion after that. But I think people are increasingly lately realizing that if you can't count, if you can't systematically figure out how many people were doing this as opposed to how many people were doing that, Uh, If you don't have some sense of being able to quantify things that happened in the past, you're going to be less convincing. So that's a more recent, I think, a more recent change. But a lot of it is the resources that we need are in some ways the same ones. It's just that we're using them in more creative ways. The other big change, of course, is oral history uh, in terms of resources, that there was very little oral history being done 40 years ago. And now anybody who's working in an area where people are still alive recognizes that it's imperative. 
How do you see these these changes, these trends reflected in the humanities and social sciences more broadly? Um, well, let me step back for a second in terms of resources. There, there's one other thing, and that is once upon a time, one resource you didn't have to have was technological aptitude or aptitude. And obviously now you can't do any research without having a firm grasp of what you can do with a computer. Uh, everything I did at the beginning, I did basically with books. Uh, and now the resources that we have are very different. In some ways, the most important difference, and this is a teaching difference, is two generations ago, 40 years ago, the skill of a historian was finding things. You had to be really good at finding stuff. Unless you were studying the elite, if you were studying the kinds of people that I was looking at or that other people who were studying people who didn't leave a lot of records, you had to be really creative to be able to find things. And you would spend years looking for needles on, in, in haystacks uh, in terms of looking in archives. Now the skill that we have to teach students is not how to find things, but how to sift things. There aren't very many topics now where it's hard to find stuff because of the internet. And so instead of teaching how to find, we have to teach how to sift. And I think this, for, for librarians and archivists, this is especially important in terms of what they have to help our students do. When I first started, uh, a student would walk into an archive or walk into the library, go up to the reference desk or to the archivist and say, I need you to help me find X, Y, or Z. Uh, it's not hard to find X, Y, and Z anymore. And even if it is, and the archivist or the librarian has to help the student find it, most likely they're going to find lots of stuff. How do I sift? How do I know what's useful in this huge pile of digital stuff? So that's probably the big, that may well be the big difference in terms of how we teach people to do research. Uh, broader trends in the humanities and social sciences. I think here that once again, gender is, I, I think understanding the influence of gender, understanding the influence of race. Uh, in the 80s and 90s, we realized that everybody had gender. And in the last 10 years, people who didn't realize it before uh, realized that everybody has race. And so understanding the characteristics uh, that help you understand why people made the decisions that they did, why the thing, why they did the things they did, uh, that we're increasingly realizing how important social categories are and how important it is to look carefully at social categories. Building off what you said a moment ago about the new tool of digital literacy, new technologies have certainly made possible new forms of scholarship and seemingly increasingly in, in recent years. Which of these do you find the most exciting? That's a good question. When you say which of these, do you mean digital tools? Do you mean tools or tools? Tools are not exciting. Right. In some ways, I think what we're finding exciting, quite frankly, right now, is the ways in which people are using technologies like Zoom to have meetings, to have uh, conversations that uh, years ago you wouldn't have with scholars in different places. And you, you would have them at conferences and people still will. But the ease with which I can say to a student now, I know uh, you're my, you know, I can say to one of my graduate students, if I were still advising dissertations, as much help as I can give you with this topic, because I know the general area, uh, professor such and such 
uh, who is across the country and doesn't even teach graduate students, has used the archive that you're about to use. Why don't you go ahead and have a conversation with him? Or, and, and also, Professor such-and-such, such, who is in another part of the country, uh, has been using it in different ways, and she would be able to, to interact with the other. Basically, you can create four or five-person conversations that you couldn't create this easily two or three years ago, or that you could, but nobody was doing it. Conference calls are not the same as these kind of face-to-face. So I think that's one, that is one exciting, and it's not a new tool at all. Obviously, the most important is search engines. And I realize that I hear I'm not sounding very innovative. If there's anything that has changed the way we do research, it's that we can find almost anything that exists out there. That's transformed things. It would What, what once took months to do, to track down, to use the various search aids that were published, now you can do in a few days. That transforms everything you can do because it gives you more time to think. Gives you more time to read, more time to think, more time to write, uh, as opposed to simply trying to find. So I think that's the most, in some ways, that's the most important change. I think people sometimes forget that digital humanities is a field, but it's also a set of tools. And tools simply enable you to do things. Tools in and of themselves, to me at least, aren't exciting. They are to other people. To say to someone, well, that work is important because it's the first one to use that tool. That's often important. But the real question is, who's the first person to use that tool to say something interesting? Right. Well, and that 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 is an interesting way of thinking, too, because on the one hand, you can use these tools for illumination or the construction of knowledge. Then there's the other side of using the tools for more of the uh, public engagement and dissemination aspects. That's where the transformation to me is fascinating. You know, you had asked about tools for research. Now the ability to disseminate knowledge, then the ways in which we disseminate knowledge is much more democratic. Uh, it's the feedback is much more is much more immediate. Used to take where it used to take months to send somebody a manuscript, wait until they had a chance to read it, they mark it up, they send it back to you. Now, if you want someone to read something, you send it to them, you send a link or an attachment, uh, and they can get back to you as soon as they have a chance to read it. So I think scholarship can be a lot more collaborative now than it was before. It's a lot easier for people to request suggestions and criticism from other people. I would like to see this ability used more in terms of criticism. Uh, One of the problems that we have in uh, certainly in social media, is whether or not people are actually seeking out disagreement. Are people seeking criticism from people who don't agree with them? So, for example, one of the things that we couldn't do before uh, as easily is you see that right now how often people post reading lists. Something becomes interesting, and you can post a syllabus, you can post a reading list, which are often very influential because people want to learn about it. And they can go to these reading lists. I judge these reading lists by whether or not they include things the, po- the person who compiled them disagrees with. If you, if you said, here's 10 great readings about mm. this, and all 10 are things that you agree with, I, I'm not going to take that as seriously as someone who says, here's 10 great readings, and I look at them and I realize this person has put things up there that they disagree with, but that they know is good scholarship. In terms of collaboration, History and other fields have have always been 
collaborative, although the traditional narrative is it's the individual sitting, doing research, writing a book. You mentioned so many more opportunities for collaboration. Do you think the, our cultures and our institutions and academia are prepared to understand that collaboration, to uh, reward that collaboration? We have to do more work in that area. I mean, oddly enough, the myth of the monkish humanist is deeply problematic in part because it misunderstands monks and it misunderstands humanists. I mean, monks were actually pretty collaborative. Uh, they, were, they were off in the monastery working together, remember, <laughs> to some extent. But human, history, certainly, history scholarship has always been collaborative. You, you, you give things. If, if you write stuff that you don't give people to read, you've got serious problems with your scholarship. Especially you should be giving, pe- giving it to people who disagree with you. Uh, so scholarship in that sense has always been collaborative. We work with editors. Uh, anybody who's ever published an article or a book has done collaborative scholarship. It's just that we don't necessarily recognize the work that the editor puts in to make scholarship better than it was before it got to the editor. Uh, we know that a lot of historians use research assistants. So the process has right. always been more collaborative than people think. So there's a myth there, first of all. Second of all, yes, there are challenges because our reward system requires us to try to figure out what an individual contribution has been. How do you give someone tenure? How do you hire somebody unless you know what work they did? And that's a challenge, but it's not an insuperable challenge. There are lots of ways of trying to to work on that. Uh, The American Historical Association actually has a document that has recommendations about this. It's very easy to ask somebody who has done collaborative work to write a short piece explaining what they did and why what they did and how that contributed to the collaborative enterprise. And our colleagues in the sciences have been doing this for a long time. I think that we sometimes romanticize it. We sometimes don't realize how difficult our colleagues in the sciences have uh, found this from time to time. Uh, who's, who's second author, who's third author, who's fourth author, author sometimes uh, generates more conflict than we recognize. I think some of us may not be aware of of sharing of how often sharing data can be a problem. So it's not easy, but yes, we have to figure out we have to figure out how we can incorporate it into the reward system, into the incentive system, into the funding system. I've I've written work with other people for 20, 30 years, and I'll be honest with you, I find it fun. And, and by, by closing off that option to people, by discouraging it, mm-hmm. we are actually making scholarship less fun. That was actually something that I wanted to follow up on, was thinking about all the other players in the system. What sorts of help do you think libraries, museums, technologists, funders, others need to need to be able to offer to support this kind of work? I mean, part of the problem is it's easy to say to funders, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this. It's their money. Uh, And I think too many people are a little bit cavalier in telling funders what to do with their money. They have to have their priorities. They have to make their decisions. Uh, That said, I would like to see funders encourage collaborative research. And to do that requires a different approach to reading and evaluating grant proposals. Uh, right now, obviously, for most for most fellowship funding, uh, it's oriented towards individuals, is oriented towards a specific period of time that's not necessarily family friendly. Uh, the difference between saying to someone, "We'll give you money to take a year off," 
by yourself. That's very different from saying we can give you the same amount of money and you can use it over a two to three year period. Uh, give us a budget that explains how you and a colleague uh, can do the kind of work you want to do using that money. I think it's important for people who are in mm -hmm. my position to not just say we need more money, but to say if it's the same amount of money, how can it be made more flexible? How can we take the existing fellowship system and change it? Same amount of money, but change the ways in which those fellowships are conceptualized to allow people to have different kinds of work processes, different kinds of work schedules. I think the COVID issues are making it especially clear that people's family status matters in terms of how they can do work. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one thing. I think in terms of archivists and librarians, quite frankly, the, the obligation is much more on, on scholars. I think that we need to think much harder uh, about how librarians and archivists can be partners in the work that we do. That for too long, too many, not just historians, but too many humanities scholars have seen librarians and archivists as a resource. I need to accomplish X, Y, and Z, and uh, these are people who can help me do that. Uh, that's important, but also seeing librarians and archivists as partners in the production of scholarship is, is important because then we, then we learn more, for example, about how an archive is created. One of the problems of the way historians have traditionally seen archives is you go, you see what's there, you use what's there, you use it creatively, you do the best you can with it. And then maybe you also think about, quote, the archive, and you do your, your critical analysis of the archive and why some things are there and why things aren't. But how many of those articles on critical studies of, quote, the archive have actually asked the archivist how things got there? I, I think too many scholars uh, are, again, well-meaning in terms of questioning the authority of, quote, the archive. Uh, and I, I say in quotes because often people use the term the archive to describe things that are not archives. Archivists have a very a, a definition of what an archive is. And, and historians and I think other humanists sometimes use the term the archive a little bit too cavalierly. But you see a lot of work out there where people talk about how you have to look at the archive critically. You have to think about the filters. And you ask, why not ask the archivist? how the stuff that's there got there. And I don't see that happening very often. So I do think that it that, that there's more collaborative work that, that could be done. It does seem to me that our colleagues in libraries and archives also uh, can be playing a much larger role in the classroom. Uh, there were library, college librarians uh, as early as the 70s and probably earlier, who actually sometimes team taught courses with humanities faculty. And I would love to see more of that, uh, where the librarian or the archivist isn't brought in for one day to tell the students what's available, but where there's actually more of a collaborative approach to what research is. You've been a vocal proponent, too, of making sure that the history PhD is not simply the gateway to a career path of, of university or college faculty. How do you think the image and the training of the history PhD need to change? The image and the training go along. The image, part of the image problem goes back to the stereotype of the monk, which, as I said, has to do in part with mistaken notions of the monk. Uh, 
But the notion that a PhD is earned by someone who goes off to the library, buries himself or herself in the stacks, and comes out four years later with a dissertation, uh, that, that may happen from time to time. The odds are that dissertation isn't going to be very good, at least from my perspective, that it's going to be narrow, that it's going to lack a wide perspective. So I think one thing is people need to realize that the, the process of writing a dissertation is much more collaborative already than people assume. And that therefore people with PhDs actually do know how to work with other people. But to start with how graduate education ought to change. Uh, first of all, I think that when we think about how we prepare graduate students, we have to realize that a PhD is a degree that ought to be able to be malleable. It ought to be able to prepare you for many different things. And that means, for example, that people who are getting PhDs ought to have work experience in a wider variety of settings. So the easiest example there, we have long said that graduate students need to do apprenticeships as researchers, and we call them research assistants. We've said that graduate students need to do apprenticeships as teachers, and we call them teaching assistants, although we don't call them that anymore. Most scholars end up spending a fair amount of their time doing administration. Uh, the number of scholars who spend their lives writing books at research universities is a small minority. Most scholars end up teaching, if they end up teaching at all, they end up teaching in places where they have to do a lot of committee work, take their turn at being chair, uh, maybe other administrative work, and we do not teach people how to do that at all. So you ask yourself, what happens if we have a third assistantship that involves learning how the university works, doing administrative work? First of all, we are, we are preparing our PhD students who do go into academia to be better professors, to be better colleagues, to be more effective members of the faculty. But at the same time, we're preparing them to work in other places. We're preparing them to work in the nonprofit sector. We're preparing them to work in the for-profit sector, in government, because they will get out of graduate school having worked in an office having worked in a more hierarchical environment or a different kind of hierarchy, uh, having worked where there's a different culture of time. Uh, I started as a labor historian. And in the 1970s, the most important articles in labor history were articles dealing with the relationship between time and work culture. E.P. Thompson's Time, Work Discipline, uh, and Industrial Capitalism was one of the most important articles written in the 1960s. Academics have pre-industrial work cultures to a considerable extent, or what we used to call pre-industrial. Uh, they don't punch clocks uh, or the equivalent. Uh, it doesn't matter if you start at 9.30 and finish at 5.30. It doesn't matter if you want to do your work in the middle of the night, if you're a teacher, as long as you meet your class and are prepared for it. In most jobs, you have to be there when other people are there. If you're a librarian, you have public service responsibilities. You have collaborative responsibilities. Most jobs, other than being a professor, you have to have a schedule that's predictable, a schedule that's collaborative, very different from being a professor. And an assistantship as part of your graduate program provides you with that other kind of time discipline that, that helps you to think about other kinds of work. 
quite frankly, it's also valuable to your research because you will have work experience that looks like the work experience of most of the people that you study, depending on obviously the focus of your of your work. So I think that's probably one of the most important things is for graduate students to have this kind of experience. A second thing that has to change is our graduate students have to have a minimum of quantitative literacy because most jobs, in fact, includes most, again, most professors, if you're going to chair a committee, it it really helps if you can read a budget. If you are going to write good history, it helps if you can read quantitative scholarship. You don't have to do it, but you ought to be able to read it and critique it. But in much of the world, again, I don't care whether it's government, nonprofits, for-profit, private sector, it can help if you can read a budget, not to mention create a budget, uh, not to mention do evaluation that is quantitative uh, and understand when quantitative evaluation is not appropriate. So you have faculty members, for example, who are deep critics for very good reason, quantitative assessment tools in higher education. But it's awfully hard to be a an effective critic of quantitative assessment tools if you don't understand them. I think whether you're inside or outside of academia, that kind of modicum of quantitative literacy is absolutely essential for our graduate students. The other thing that needs to change is we need to be more ecumenical in how we teach students how to communicate. Uh, traditionally, and I wouldn't say now because we've the AHA has actually, I think, accomplished a lot of change in this area. We've worked with 40 graduate history graduate programs in one way or another. That's a quarter of all of them. But one of the things we need to change is traditionally students have learned how to write scholarly books, how to write scholarly articles, how to lecture, and how to conduct a seminar. Those are the forms of communication that graduate school has prepared people for. Our students need to learn how to write memos. Our students need to learn visual forms of presentation, which I think most of them probably are now, quite frankly. Uh, our students need to learn how to speak briefly, which I'm not doing very well now. People talk about the three-minute dissertation. No, you need to be able to summarize your dissertation in under a minute. You need to be able to explain in any context why something is important in under a minute. And it's not hard to do this in graduate education. I mean, quick example, you can take your traditional graduate seminar, 35-page paper is the main requirement, you're reading a book a week or more, and say to the student, at the end of the term, I not only want that 35-page paper, I want a one-page memo that can be comprehensible to somebody who has absolutely no idea what we're doing. And that one-page memo maybe even should have bullet points which makes academics recoil with horror. And that, and that, doesn't, that doesn't add that much time, especially as the students get good at it. And you say, I want that one-page paper, one-page memo to be not an abstract. I don't want a summary. I want a one-page memo explaining what you did and why it matters to somebody who is not in this space intellectually. Uh, and then you go around in class, the very last class, and you say, I want everybody in the room to explain in one minute or less what they did, why they did it, and why it matters. That's not going to add a hell of a lot of time to your graduate seminar. And you can also even say, and I want a poster. I would love to see every university create poster competitions for graduate students. They already have them in the sciences and the social sciences. 
humanities students generally don't participate. And what I've heard from some places where humanities students do participate is oddly enough, the humanities students are often less able than the chemists to explain to other people what they did. Because that's what you have to do with a poster. You have to stand, you have to think of a way to present visually what you just accomplished. And you have to be able to stand next to it and explain to someone what you did in a short enough conversation that they remain interested. So I would love to see more universities include the humanities in poster competitions. And I would like to see more departments require uh, that as somehow part of graduate education in the humanities. Uh, and I say that as someone who would have been terrible at this, and it would have been great for me to learn. I'm visually challenged. So I think those are easy ways for us to think about changing graduate education. None of those things take a lot of work. I think the assistantship takes some structural work because of changing in uh, funding structures. But the others, the others are incremental changes. But I think it's all cultural. It's a cultural and attitudinal problem. We have to stop telling students that administrators are venal, immoral, stupid, and worse. Because we have to be thinking about our students getting PhDs in the humanities as people who might want to go into careers in administration. That's a viable, that's a viable career path, especially for a recent PhD who's done some part-time teaching, uh, who does a year or two of full-time temporary teaching. This is the industry that they know. It also means that our graduate programs perhaps should pay a little more attention to higher education as subject matter. Uh, in, in other professional areas, in law school, you learn how the courts work. Medical school, you learn a little bit, I think, about how hospitals work. We don't teach our students much about how the university works, and we should. Yeah, no, that's definitely the case. It makes me think, too, when you were saying a few minutes ago that um, you'd like to see more, for example, librarians in you know co-teaching courses and things like that. That librarians might be able to to bring some of the skills in in teaching visualization and visual literacy. Librarians might be able to bring some of these communication and and administrative skills that um, perhaps the uh, the faculty themselves need some support with. Oh, absolutely, and I think that. Uh that students, graduate students, perhaps when I say that these of this third assistantship, working in the library would be one possible venue for that kind of work. We have a member of our staff who actually plays a very prominent role in our career diversity work, who worked for five years in the university library. Uh, her, her program, she was not fully funded. Uh, obviously, she, she would have been happier if she was fully funded. But that five years of working and not and not she wasn't just working at the desk. She was working in the library development office. That was tremendous preparation for the work she does at the AHA. I worked in the library as an undergraduate and as a graduate student. And there were a lot of things I learned in that kind of work. Uh, not I wasn't learning how to be a librarian, but I was learning about work culture that was different from the work culture of, of being a student. Uh, I was learning certain types of collaborative work. And, and that can take place in all sorts of places in the university. And obviously, libraries, university libraries could benefit tremendously from the skills and knowledge that our students have. It's, it's, this, is, this is a win-win situation. I'd like to circle back to your first answer 
in this conversation where you talked about the growing interest and recognition of gender and race and ethnicity issues uh, within history. And I'd like to turn that lens back on the discipline of history itself, those who are faculty. And what do you see as the the ways to perhaps broaden the inclusion of, of on those scales, gender, race, ethnicity, diverse experiences? We have to think of ways of making graduate education in our disciplines more attractive and more possible to a more diverse population of people. Uh, you can't you can't hire PhDs who aren't there, and we have not done a very good job of recruiting, retaining, incentivizing, especially more racially diverse uh, population of of PhD students. So, for example, when you run when you run an admissions process, whether it's undergraduate, graduate, any any kind of pipeline, the obvious criteria the obvious criteria for admission are going to include chance of success. That, that has to be. You have to do that, if, especially if you're funding. If you're, if you're giving someone a, a, a fellowship and, and tuition for six years, ask yourself how much an investment that is in each student. And you obviously have to take into consideration what's the chance of success. Now, if your success rate is 100%, I would argue that means you're taking no risks and therefore you failed. But in many cases, there is, for good reason, an attempt to say, we need to, to take people who are going to succeed. Well, how do, you, how do you define success? You could say success is defined by who finishes, but a lot of programs define success by, quote, placements. We don't use placements anymore as a term, but how many students became mm-hmm. professors? Well, that's going to narrow the characteristics, qualifications, uh, general orientation of the people you admit. What happens, you mentioned career diversity earlier, what happens if you step back and say, okay, uh, right now our program, a minority of our PhDs become professors. 25% of our PhDs end up as higher ed administrators, private sector, public sector are we looking for 25% of our admits to be people who are likely to succeed in that career path? I doubt it. I doubt many are doing that. Mm-hmm. If we say we're going to look honestly at the career paths our PhDs might follow if they do well in our program and look at the likelihood, look at the characteristics of applicants and say, okay, if we broaden this definition of success, you're going to end up broadening the criteria by which you're evaluating students. Once you start broadening the the criteria by which you're evaluating applicants, that means you're broadening your pipeline. That means that you're saying, okay, we are going to have a more diverse group of people because we're seeing a more diverse set of career paths as successful. I suspect that programs that are not using a single definition of success, i.e., we're taking people who are going to become important research scholars and start saying, no, we want people, we want a class, so we want an entering class that's going to include people who are going to be good teachers. We want an entering class that is going to include people who are going to be effective 
representatives of our discipline in a wide variety of places in our society. One of the things that is in all of our interests, for example, using history as an example, it's in the interest of history as a discipline to have historians and legislatures, to have historians in the business world, to have historians everywhere. Well, if I say our program is successful, if we are able to uh, graduate PhDs who end up everywhere, we're going to look at more different types of people in our admissions process. So I think that's one that's in a in a way that's one easy way although changing culture is hard and changing definitions of success is changing culture but that's certainly one way in which we can diversify the people who are our graduate students uh i also think we have to do a better job of listening to our current students uh to find out why it is that some of their college colleagues didn't apply I mean, we do that with, it's it's not rocket science. We do that with membership. When we're trying to figure out how to increase our membership, we try to find people who once were members but aren't anymore or who ought to be members in terms of they look like others of our in our membership. You know, if we have a lot of associate professors in certain types of universities who are members, it's a no-brainer to say we we should look at the associate professors in those types of universities who aren't members and ask why not. Same thing with graduate graduate recruitment. If we're looking for people in certain categories and seeing that they're not applying, let's ask the ones who did apply and who are in our programs and say, why didn't your peers apply? What are we what are we doing wrong? What are we doing that makes it look like this isn't a lot of fun, that this isn't very interesting, that this isn't a viable career path? I think we have to ask, we have to ask, we have to our students have to help us there. To what extent might you consider in the field supporting a greater diversity of research outputs? Traditionally, the idea has been the single author monograph, and that's been the the key to success for an academic career. What about digital projects? What about collaborative work? What about other outputs? The AHA, someone can Google this easily enough, the AHA is already published and propagated a document that not only uh, advocates considering digital equivalents of print publications, but even uh, talks a little bit about how to evaluate them and even offers help. Any, any department that has anybody coming up for tenure or promotion whose publications have been digital rather than print and who doesn't feel that it has the appropriate expertise to evaluate them will help. So we, we're already there in terms of trying to both advocate and help departments think about the viability of digital publications as legitimate scholarship. I think where, where we need to go increasingly is beyond just thinking about digital versus print, uh, which is, for example, is it possible that there is such a thing as a scholarly op-ed? I would argue there is. That doesn't mean that every op-ed is scholarly. Uh, I think you know, there's, there's different types of op-eds. There's op-eds that are punditry. There are op-eds that are polemics. But there are also op-eds that you, you can read this op-ed and say, you know, I don't think anybody could have written this if they weren't a professional historian uh, because of the mode of argument, the type of rhetoric. 
And therefore, you ought to be able to count that kind of work and to evaluate it. The, the notion that only peer-reviewed work counts is, 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 is short-sighted and narrow-minded because anything can be peer-reviewed post hoc. Right. You can say, well, people will say, well, well, op eds are not shouldn't count because they're not peer reviewed. Well, if someone has written 25 op eds, I'm a department chair. I can either have the department peer review those 25 op eds or I can send them out. But I ought to. There's no reason why you can't have those 25 op eds read and said this is good scholarship. It's not good scholarship. And then you simply have to ask. And this would vary for every department. How do you how do you count an op-ed quantitatively? And that depends on the mission of the university or the college. There could be some colleges and universities which, because of their mission, because of their culture, uh, they actually would prefer that people write for the general public than write for 25 colleagues. So there's no reason. We have 3,500 or more colleges and universities in this country. One of the reasons our system, quite frankly, works, contrary to what some people think is the diversity of institutions. Why should every one of those institutions have the same criteria? It makes no sense. So yes, in some places it should be peer-reviewed, written for, written for the discipline, et cetera, et cetera. But in other places, you ought to be able to say, that's not what's useful to our university. That's not what we want to accomplish. We want to reach the public uh, or both. The other thing is this concept of a monograph. You know, I've never referred to anything I've written as a monograph. The monograph is a technical term that refers to, uh, you know, about a single about a single thing. And people use monograph to refer to things that I would argue are much broader in their conceptualization. I write books. I don't write monographs. And 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 I think that's part of it as well that we have to think more broadly about what it means to write a book. Just because you're writing a book does not mean you're writing something narrow. Just because you write something narrow doesn't mean that you write it in a style that's not accessible to a broad population. There are there are some topics that are very narrow that lots of people are interested in. So part of the problem is that we are equating terms that are not necessarily the same or equatable. Narrowness is not the same as inaccessibility. All historians ought to be able to write accessible prose. So I do think that part of the problem is, is the words that we use uh, and this notion that the monograph is, in fact, the coin of the realm. The book may be the coin of the realm, not necessarily the monograph. And the book doesn't have to be the coin of the realm. I mean, it's not that hard to look at a substantial digital project and say, what does this contribute to the discipline? It contributes about the same amount as a 250-page book or a 40-page article. Therefore, if we're an institution that counts, this is what we're going to count it as. I'd rather think about the quality, but I understand that in some places, quantity matters. Yeah, it, cer it certainly seems the case that uh, there's an increasing emphasis at virtually all institutions for some sort of applied work or some further public engagement than perhaps there has been yep. in the past. And I think that's important. I think the issue is we need to stop counting. I am not in favor of somebody being able to say, I've written 50 blog posts. That's a lot of production. Maybe they're no good. We have to have the confidence in our ability as historians to determine whether or not the scholarly 
work that our colleagues are doing is good work and has contributed to the conversation with the public and among ourselves. When we talk about it being good work, we have to recognize that there are many purposes to scholarship, but it's still a matter of evidence. It's still a matter of argumentation. It's still a matter of of historical integrity. Thank you for that. In wrapping us up, what is the the biggest issue or trend or future change you foresee that that we haven't discussed? I'm a historian, not an economist. So the (laughs) likelihood that I can, that I'm willing to predict the future is very low. I also find it in some ways counterproductive for people to say that any change is inevitable. Uh, When I talked earlier about how in the 80s, in the 70s and 80s, historians were stepping back and asking about human agency, uh, we learned something about that, which is that what what we used to call the isations, industrialization, bureaucratization, urbanization, which seemed to make things inevitable as part of these broad processes, that actually human agency matters. I'm disinclined to say this change, any change is inevitable. Uh, So that makes it much harder to predict the future. One thing that is obvious is that to survive, the humanities disciplines are going to have to do a better job of communicating the value of what we do to broader publics. And I say value, I emphasize usefulness, relevance is too low a bar. The work that I do is not valuable because it's relevant. It's valuable because it's useful. The work that we do has to be useful to somebody. It can be useful to our colleagues. I'm okay with that too. I mean, the standard job talk question has been for years. How is that going to change the standard textbook in your field? Some people bristle at that question. But that question is asking, how useful is what you just did? What, how does it change what we know? But I think we have to broaden our notion of what makes something useful. It seems to me that a dissertation defense can, depending on, depending on the subject again. But it, there's no reason why dissertation defenses asking in addition to that standard question can also be, can you describe a contemporary community that would find your work useful and explain to me why? That's not going to pertain to all work. Not every work should be judged by the same standard. Uh, but that's a that's a legitimate question in terms of value that some people will be able to argue that convincingly. The more PhDs, MAs, and BAs that we graduate who can convince policymakers, journalists, other publics, that the work that we do is useful, the more likely it is that we will be allocated the resources we need to do the useful work that we do. You you can't just say to voters, legislators, journalists, trust me, what I'm doing is important because it's important to me. That's not enough anymore. That's fantastic. And I want to thank you so much for this wonderful conversation this evening. It's been very enlightening. Thank you for joining us for this episode. I'm your host, Darby Orcutt. Be sure to subscribe to Momentum HSS on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen to your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and share it with a friend. And until next time, keep up the momentum. Momentum.